This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. And a very good Thursday afternoon. Jay McNaughton here with you today for the Country Hour. Coming up on the program, the Victorian Government has extended the consultation period for the draft bill for the new animal care and protection laws to the 25th of March. We'll hear from Agriculture Victoria about the latest there. The National Farmers Federation says Australians have been left bamboozled by the government's attempts to legislate a new tax on farmers, the biosecurity protection levy, intended to raise $50 million. And I would love to hear from you today. What is the weather like where you are? It's been a volatile few days. And in some good news, the fires surrounding the Ballarat region where I'm broadcasting from today have now been contained. So you can shoot me through a text on 0467 842 But first, the Victorian Premier Jacinda Allen has just briefed the media with the latest on the fire situation. And this is what she had to say about half an hour ago or so. The large fire at Bayandine, the fire that started last Thursday on that really difficult day, we can advise that that fire has now moved into the status of being contained. And that is thanks to a huge amount of work. There has been hundreds and hundreds of firefighters out on the ground and in the air, uh, making sure that they've not only got on top of this fire last week when it broke out and saw so many people from the local community have to evacuate their homes and property, but also too, particularly over uh, the days leading up to yesterday, a huge amount of work went into preparing for yesterday, building containment lines, managing the, the fire from both the air on the ground, which saw, yes, saw us be able today to be able to say that that fire is now contained. And when you consider that that fire has burnt 22,000 hectares. It's got a 165-kilometre fire front. That speaks to the great work of people, as I said, on the ground and in the air for managing that fire. But also, too, yesterday, we saw late yesterday afternoon a fire at uh, Dereal, which we are pleased to say is now under control. We can, at this stage, the indication is that there is one building that has been uh, lost that will, is yet to be confirmed as to whether that is a house or a or an outbuilding on a, on a property, and that will be confirmed as the impact assessments are worked through uh, the, over the course of today. The the fire at Dereal burned about 110 uh, hectares, so again a big fire, a significant fire that ignited at the at the peak of the the wind and the heat uh, during yesterday. And I want to particularly thank the uh, crew from New South Wales who have supported the crew, the local CF crew on the ground to be able to get on top of that fire. Uh, these uh, fires in the western part of the district uh, could have been so much worse, but it is thanks to that preparation, training and readiness from our firefighters, uh, our Victorian Emergency Services responders that I particularly want to thank and acknowledge today. It is quite impressive that we have seen such damaging weather over the past uh, three weeks that has resulted. We have had some property loss and we sadly saw the, the loss of, uh, of a farmer in, uh, in South Gippsland. 
but we have seen a real containment and a real protection of life and property over the past three weeks, and that is because of the coordination, the training and the response of our emergency services, which uh, on behalf of all Victorians, we say thank you and we're deeply grateful for the work you've put in. Jacqueline and I have just uh, had met with many people in the Incident Control Centre here at Ballarat. They're from right across the state, from the northeast to Gippsland, from central Victoria, people who, in the case of emergency, come together, working together in teams to protect every community. And for that, we say thank you. Again, I want to reiterate my thanks uh, to the crews from New South Wales. We had about 100 personnel from New South Wales come and base themselves here at Ballarat in readiness for yesterday's difficult day and their contribution uh, was a, made a substantial impact on managing the fire at Dereal and that activation of the national resource sharing arrangement between the different states also speaks to the great cooperation and coordination that happens across state borders when we have difficult uh, and dangerous weather events like we did, uh, did yesterday. Finally, too, I also wanted to say thank you to all Victorians. Uh, again, we've had three difficult weeks of repeat weather patterns of high heat and high winds. We've seen the damage that the storms have done. We've seen the impact that the fires have inflicted. And sadly, we know that many properties uh, were lost, particularly around uh, Pomonal, uh, the, in terms of the fires that occurred in, the, in that first week. But I do want to thank all Victorians who have heeded the advice. Uh, the, the, the lower numbers of properties that we've seen damaged, the fact that there has not been in the case of the fires a loss of life, I think speaks directly to the fact that uh, Victorians have heeded the warnings to, to not be present, to activate the fire plan when on days of extreme and catastrophic fire. When there are warnings to, uh, to leave, to watch an act, to then leave and leave immediately, those warnings have also been followed. And uh, also on that front, I want to thank the people who've worked uh, for some days at the relief centres supporting those Victorians who needed to evacuate their community in the face of the dangerous fires that were, were coming through. This uh, demonstrates that um, when we listen to the warnings, we can see that uh, the result that we're talking about today. And just finally too, it also speaks to the planning and preparation that goes into uh, events like this. It happens week in, week out, day in, day out, outside of the difficult conditions that our emergency services work to prepare for these events. And uh, we're very grateful for that work. That was the Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen briefing the media earlier this morning about half an hour or so ago with the latest on the fire situation and with this latest information regarding the Dereal fire being downgraded to an advice level and the Bay and Dean fire currently under control, emergency broadcasting is no longer required at the ABC at the moment but you can stay up to date and see maps of the warning areas on the ABC emergency website, that's abc.net.au forward slash emergency as well as the Vic emergency website and we'll keep you updated if the situation does change here on your local ABC radio, your emergency broadcaster. And I'd love to hear what it's like on the ground where you are, whether you're in a fire-affected region or, or not. We know that the um, Merbu North area obviously was having some clean-up as well in the light of some storms. So we'd love to know what you're doing, how the weather's been treating you here on the Country Hour. The text number is 0467 842 722.
One person who I uh, think is having a bit of a sigh of relief at the moment is Jim Gaylard. He's on the line now live from Tawalla, which is, sorry, Tawalla, which is east of Beaufort and the Bay and Dean Fire. He's the farm manager at Rose Grange Pastoral. Jim, how are you feeling at the moment? Uh, Jane, uh, yeah, massive sorrow of relief and great news to hear from the Premier. Um, yeah, we had uh, a, a day of two seasons yesterday. We sort of, we woke up and it was reasonably, uh, it was reasonably damp, to be honest. We had some, uh, we had some showers and, and it was, you know, pretty cool. Um, but then by lunchtime, it started to, uh, started to warm up and the wind picked up just as I predicted. And uh, yeah, it started to get pretty scary again. How are you feeling? You mentioned when I uh, spoke with you earlier in the week that last week you were feeling quite scared despite the fact that you've been involved with multiple fires for many years. Yeah, look, yesterday I think I was a little bit more relieved. I mean, the, you know, the significant planning that I guess, uh, you know, the district's done um, over the past week's been amazing. And, uh, and I guess we were fully aware of what was ahead of us. So we were, we were as a farm, we were, you know, super prepared and um, ready for anything. I guess it was going to come our way, but um, yeah, look, it still it still was reasonably unnerving. I mean that that wind where we were sitting, you know, we were sort of clocking it well above fifty kilometres an hour, and it was, you know, it was sort of blowing pretty hard at us. And um, yeah, just thinking back to on Thursday where it was spotting sort of, you know, ten to fifteen kilometres ahead of itself. You know, that I mean that was the real scary part of it. So. Uh, but you know, thankfully, and and you know, just to to back up everything the premier was saying, just you know what the what the CFA, what the air attack crews, the private crews, the DSC, the earth moving crews, it's it's just, I mean, it's just amazing what they've done, and uh, and you know what they've saved. Like it's it's probably the biggest fire that the Raglan area has seen for over a hundred years, and. Um, you know, the amount of houses, livestock and um, and shedding and everything that's been saved is just, you know, it's just outstanding. Indeed. that That's quite incredible. So this is probably one of the biggest disasters in the region you've ever seen as far as fire goes, then, Jim. Oh, absolutely. Look, yeah, and particularly up there, you know, in, in, in the terrain that it was in, you know, coming out of the mountain, um, uh, you know, the, uh, there's so many, you know, like, you know, there's so many stories coming out of houses that were just about gone and then bang, you know, a, a, an air attack, you know, a helicopter or plane would dump water on it and save. It was just, you know, it's just bone chilling really. And, and you're just so proud of what those guys have done. It's been, um, yeah, it's been amazing. So, And a lot of farmers in the region, including yourself, have been also doing a lot of work. So, you know, we'd like to congratulate you as well. You mentioned to me earlier that you've been... Um, uh, doing some mitigation work around uh, making sure your livestock are safe. How are they going at the moment? Yeah, look good, and and I guess our focus now is, and it and it has been after Thursday, um, like I guess Rose Grange, but particularly um, the greater community now. The focus is for the farmers that have been hundred percent burnt out, and we've got to get you know get fodder up to them, and um, you know there's places that don't have a fence standing or don't have any any grass left, and you know, their water would be com- compromised too. So, I mean, that's where, I guess, you know, lover of animals and, and you put your focus back onto that and, you, you know, obviously we've got to keep things going on here, but um, we'll help where we can in that sense and um, and get up and, and help the guys up that way as well. So, um, you know, but, yeah, look, yeah, 
we're just a very we're I, I guess there's a, a large parcel of land where you know we i suppose we are reasonably exposed um but we're just so thankful that it didn't that didn't come way our way that you know feel a bit um feel a bit guilty or sorry for the guys that did get burned out so a sigh of relief but still plenty of work to do Exactly, that's right. Jim, thank you so much for the update from the ground there in Trawalla, just uh, east there of Beaufort. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Shane. Anytime. Thank you. That is Jim Gaylord there. He's farm manager at Rosegrange uh, Pastoral, just to the east of Beaufort, where that Bay and Dean fire has been burning. It's still at a Watch and Act level, but authorities have said that they have got that fire now under control, which I'm sure is fantastic news for many. Uh, there's a few comments on the text line, which is 0467842722, just about uh, the way that these fires have been managed. Uh, one here from Wally saying, Dan Andrews called our CF outdated. If only the government could have been as effective as all of our firefighters who have done great things for this state for many years. Thank you for that, Wally. Uh, Another one here saying that there is a big question for the fire authorities. Do they know what or who started the Bay and Dean Mount Buanga fire? Thank you for that one. And uh, as we were just speaking with Jim on the ground there, we'd love to get your reports of what's going on with the weather where you are. Graham has texted in saying the rainfall for the month of February at Addington near Ballarat was 5 mils. The total for the year so far, January to February, is 87 mils, which does indicate that huge burst of uh, weather activity and rain that we did get at the start of January. Uh, And just speaking of the fires, in some breaking news, authorities are treating a fire that has destroyed at least one building in Victoria's west as suspicious. This is the Dereal Fire south of Ballarat that is now under investigation. Victoria's Emergency Services Commissioner Rick Nugent says that there is there was no dry lightning around at the time and no farm machinery working at the area at the time. He also says that more than 60 tankers and a dozen aircraft were deployed to battle the blaze with the mammoth effort, saving 117 homes. So I think the, the community sentiment from here in Ballarat uh, has been very thankful to our emergency services crews and hopefully... We get a little bit of reprieve. You're on the Victorian Country Hour. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Jane McNaughton here with you today where it is 19 minutes past 12. Well, Victorians now have until Monday the 25th of March to have their say on the Draft Animal Care and Protection Bill as the government has extended the consultation period. Farmers have been expressing their concern about the proposed legislation to us here on the Country Hour for months, including what they say has been a lack of consultation processes. The recognition of animal sentience has also been flagged with farmers stressed that they will need to deal with more red tape and bureaucracy as part of the animal care reforms. Earlier this morning, I spoke with Executive Director of Animal Welfare Victoria, part of Agriculture Victoria, Dr Trevor Piscottia. Well, we're extending the consultation period until the 25th of March to make sure that all Victorians have the opportunity to have their say on these important changes to Victoria's uh, animal protection laws. And we're particularly aware of the pressures that are facing regional communities at the moment in the context of fire and recent extreme weather events and just want to make sure that everyone right across the state has an opportunity to have their say. The submission process has been open for a number of weeks now. Have you been getting a lot of feedback? We've certainly had a lot of engagement um, and and there's been a lot of people logging on to the Engage Victoria website and downloading the 
documents, including the exposure draft of the bill. Um, submissions have started to come in, but often uh, in these processes, you really see a kind of flood of submissions right towards the end. Um, and so we expect them to really kick up uh, as we head towards that uh, now extended date of the 25th of March. So why do you think these new draft legislation is so important? I think to start with, Victorians really care deeply about animals and about maintaining animal welfare um, and good animal welfare standards. And importantly, maintaining good animal welfare standards helps maintain uh, consumer confidence and access to markets for Victoria's critical uh, animal industries. And our current legislation, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, is almost 40 years old and it doesn't really reflect contemporary understanding of uh, animal science or the community's expectations around uh, appropriate animal welfare standards. And so the new legislation uh, builds on the existing laws uh, but provides a kind of modern best practice approach to maintaining appropriate animal welfare standards. We've heard a lot here at ABC Rural about uh, concerns that farmers have got around what they say is a lack of consultation in the early parts of drafting this bill. Is that something that the department's aware of? So I've certainly heard uh, some of that commentary. What I would say is this has been a lengthy process where we've engaged in really comprehensive engagement uh, with a range of stakeholders, including the community. So uh, the current public consultation on the exposure draft is the third round of public consultation. There was a directions paper in 2020, uh, and then a plan for Victoria's new animal care and protection laws in 2022, both of which went out for public consultation. And in addition to that, we've consulted with more than 50 organisations representing people involved with animals or with an interest in animals and the law over the course of developing uh, this uh, legislation. So I appreciate people always want an opportunity to have their say. And that's why the government is taking this step of releasing the draft bill. That's not always a step that is taken in the development of legislation, uh, but we're really aware of the need to let everyone have a look at the law, understand what it means for them and have the opportunity to provide their feedback before the laws are finalised. One of the concerns in regards to these laws is the recognition of animal sentience from a lot of farmers. There's large concern that it's going to give animal rights activists more rights than the farmers. What's your response to that? Recognising animal sentience in the bill itself really provides the rationale for why the laws exist. Why do we care about animal welfare in the first place? And that's because we acknowledge that animals are capable of uh, experiencing both positive and, and negative experiences. And that's already implicitly recognised uh, in the current legislation. And it's also recognised in kind of codes of practice and uh, standards and guidelines that are implemented by farmers every single day. But really critically, the law stating that animals are sentient does not give animals legal rights or does not prevent animals from being owned or used for lawful purposes. Um, and it certainly doesn't prevent uh, common activities such as hunting, fishing or farming from continuing as they do now. Does this give any extended legal rights to third party organisations such as animal welfare activism organisations though? Importantly, just as under the current legislation, the new Animal Care and Protection Bill does not include a way for third parties to enforce the requirements of the bill. Uh, so the bill doesn't change the way that animal welfare offences are investigated and prosecuted. That will be done by inspectors appointed under the Act. 
And while a passerby or a third party can, as is the case now, make a complaint, they're not able to initiate criminal proceedings in any way. This legislation, if passed this year, for example, there'd be another two-year lead-in period for any kind of specifics to be finalised. That's been also a concern in the agriculture sector. Can you understand that people are concerned that there might be something passed that's not completed entirely? I certainly can understand that uncertainty is uh, can be challenging. What I would say is whenever new legislation is developed, uh, the, the primary legislation, the law itself, needs to be passed by Parliament before work can begin on the regulations, and that's kind of just the process of legislation and regulation development. Um, and so it is the case that after the legislation, um, if it's passed by Parliament this year, there's a period of time in which we'll be working to develop the regulations. That work will be done in consultation with um, industry, with stakeholders, through a really transparent process. And, and so people will have the opportunity to have their say on those regulations, which will set out some of the detail. And the other thing I think it's important to note is that the starting point for those regulations will be existing standards that, for example, farmers are really familiar with. So that might be codes of practice that exist under the current legislation or in, in relation to, for example, livestock, the national standards and guidelines that the sector already works within. That's the starting point for the regulations that will be drafted over the uh, years after the legislation is passed. We've also heard from farmers about concerns around this bill extending the amount of red tape that they need to sort of navigate to just do their day-to-day activities. Is that a concern that's been heard so far in the submissions? I'm not in a position to speak on what's come through in the submissions uh, to date because we kind of wait for them all to come in and um, analyse them in full. Uh, But certainly in thinking about how we've designed the bill, we've thought about how to ensure we can achieve the required animal welfare outcomes in a way that doesn't impose um, unnecessary burden on farmers or other people who work with animals. And so certainly uh, the bill is not intended to put in place, you know, additional hurdles or anything like that that get in the way of legitimate farming activities. Victorians now have the opportunity until the 25th of March to have their say on this draft bill that will replace the current Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. Uh, if they're interested in doing so, how where, where can they go to uh, have their say? So they just need to jump onto the Engage Victoria website, which is at engage.vic.gov.au, search for animal welfare in the search bar, and you'll find a link to reforming Victoria's animal care and protection laws. Um, That includes all the documents that are needed, uh, the draft bill, a guide to the draft bill, some frequently asked questions. And then if people want to have their say, there's a web form that they can simply fill in and provide their feedback on the different parts of the bill. And we really uh, encourage all Victorians with an interest um, to take the time to let us know what they think about the bill uh, so that can be taken into consideration in finalising the law.
Executive Director of Animal Welfare Victoria, Dr Trevor Biscotti, are speaking there with me earlier this morning. Uh, a few comments on that coming through on the text line, which is 0467 842 722. One from John uh, in Harrow saying that there seems to be an assumption by government that without draconian laws and a wide-ranging compliance army, farmers will maltreat their animals. The reality is quite different. Farmers care for their animals 24-7 because not only do they have personal desire to do so and to look after them, but it's their commercial interest is as well. There is no profit in poor or dead stock. Thank you for your uh, comments there, John. And another one here from Jeff from Jam Jareb. Wonder whereabouts in the state that is, Jeff. Uh, the term community expectations is a major concern of most of the community have no understanding of how farming works. So how can they dictate things that should be done with animals? Thank you for that one, Jeff. Uh, And relating to the fires, Chris has texted in saying, Jane, it's a sad fact that more forest areas that are locked up, there's more fires that we're going to have. Thank you for your text to the Country Hour today, Chris. And Robin Chilton with the Feb total so far for rainfall. There's 64.5 for Feb and so far for the year 108.5. Uh, in the rain gauge. Keep your text coming in. 0467 842 722 is the number. But now it's just clicking over to, it's just about to click over to half past 12 here on the Victorian Country Hour. Jane McNaughton with you today. And Emma Field is also with us today on the Country Hour with our rural news. Good afternoon. G'day, Jane. Let's start rural news in the top end, where native title holders will appeal last month's Supreme Court ruling which deemed the Northern Territory Government acted lawfully when it granted Singleton Station its water extraction licence of up to 40,000 megalitres a year. Fortune Agribusiness plans to use that water on Singleton Station to develop a large fruit farm. The Central Land Council lodged an appeal this week on behalf of native title holders, arguing the decision was invalid because it didn't comply with the NT Water Act and did not properly take into account Aboriginal cultural values. General Manager of the Central Land Council, Dr Josie Douglas, says traditional owners are determined to continue the fight against the water licence being issued. They have very deep concerns about the benefits being only to the developer and that the benefits to locals are overstated. They're deeply concerned that the water table will be reduced. This will mean an impact on groundwater dependent trees, springs, soaks, swamps and will threaten sacred sites in the region. If the Supreme Court ruling stands, it shows very clearly that the NT government does not have to take into account its own water planning processes. It means that water planning in the Northern Territory is meaningless and so-called consultations are a complete waste of time. In a statement, Fortune Agribusiness says they respect the legal process and have not yet seen the grounds for appeal, so will not comment at this time. Over to WA now, where the owner of a Pilbara cattle station says it's been almost two years since the last decent rain and he's now investing a lot of money in boars and feeder bins to ensure his cattle are fed and watered. Michael Thompson is the owner of the Mundabalangala station, 60 kilometres southwest of Port Hedland. He says the situation is grim. We're back to 2010 and 2016, now the last two tough years that we had and even though last year was a similar year, it wasn't quite as bad because we did have strips and patches of rain which 
drag most of the cattle through. But this year, well, we we just can't afford another another bad one. No, it's a combination, Belinda, of just coming off the back of a, t- a tough year because the cattle just they weren't carrying the weight they would be coming out of a good year and a bad. So they have been starting off on, a, on their back foot. When was the last good rain for us? It was May of 22. We were in a spot of bother in 22 as well. And then I don't know what happened in May. The rain gods just turned it on. There's been a lot of chat about supermarkets with several inquiries into price gouging and if supermarket suppliers are being treated fairly. Vicky Quast and her family produce turkeys near Tamworth and they've stopped supplying supermarkets some years ago. She says more farmers are looking at ways to sell products away from the major chains. I am seeing more farmers doing it locally and there are companies um, that are establishing themselves to buy or take on products to then sell directly to consumers in that area. And we've um, always dealt directly with our customers I think a few decades ago now, a supermarket made an approach and it was looked into, but they had far too much control over um, what, you, what you were doing as in you know, price and, and supply. Uh, so we decided to not go with the supermarket. I am absolutely delighted that there's going to be an, an inquiry. The fruit and veggie growers particularly, they need something to happen for, for their produce. And across Australia, wild-caught seafood industries are facing new regulations in efforts to find and maintain an ecological balance in our oceans. Some coastlines have seen catch limits introduced to ensure the long-term sustainability of species. Others are seeing practices like the use of gill nets phased out. For Cardwell-based prawn farmer, farmer Alistair Dick from Sea Farmers Queensland in northern Queensland says the industry has a responsibility to now educate consumers about seafood that's not wild caught. A lot of people uh, may not know that they're buying farm prawns but what we've seen in blind trials that more people will get it wrong than right so obviously the quality is equivalent. If everything starts off as good quality and those prawns are handled really well, seafood is very much about freshness and so there's some real key indicators whether you're buying wild or farmed about how to choose a really good prawn. Um, if they're fresh, the antenna should be long, the eyes should be shiny, the shell should be shiny, they shouldn't be broken. And they're indicators of quality prawns, whether they're farmed or wild. And so that's what consumers should be focusing on, is really understanding what those quality attributes are. And that's Raw News for this Thursday. Thank you very much, Emma Field there in Sale, bringing us our rural news. And to bring us the latest with the weather situation around the state, we're joined now by Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Michael Efron. Um, Michael, I think a lot of people are quite relieved today uh, in light of the situation we were facing about sort of, you know, just, uh, just under 24 hours ago. Hi, Jane, that's right. Yeah, we did see very hot and windy conditions over the west uh, and uh, the southwest catastrophic fire danger in in those parts of those districts uh, as well. So good news is we got through relatively unscathed uh, yesterday, and now we're seeing uh, much milder uh, conditions with a wind change having pushed through most uh, of the state. Still pretty warm through uh, the northeast, and we have seen some high base thunderstorm activity over the far north and northeast. Uh, this morning and into the early afternoon, but 
Unfortunately, not much rainfall with that, so we'll be watching that closely in terms of any uh, fire starts in uh, the landscape. But elsewhere, uh, mostly clear skies, just some patchy cloud uh, along the coast uh, as well, and uh, a lot cooler. So today, through southern districts, temperatures in uh, the mid-20s. Through the north, we are looking at uh, the low to mid-30s uh, with those southwesterly winds, but uh, again, pretty dry conditions. And then on Friday, we're looking at uh, pretty settled weather again across most of Victoria, just a slight chance of a thunderstorm in northern parts of the Mallee uh, through the afternoon and evening. In terms of temperatures, again, similar to today, the mid-20s in the south, low to mid-30s across uh, northern districts. But then on the weekend, we do see uh, a couple of cold fronts crossing Tasmania. So it does mean southerly winds will develop and freshen uh, as well. So a uh, little bit cooler in the south uh, on Saturday and Sunday. Temperatures around 20 to 22 degrees. And through the north, dropping back to around uh, 25 to 30 degrees. In those northern districts, it will stay dry and mostly sunny. In the south, uh, partly cloudy with some isolated shower activity. And then as we head into next week, we will see the next high moving over Tasmania. So the winds will turn uh, warmer southeasterly on uh, Monday compared to other weekend. So the temperatures will be on the rise back into the high 20s or low 30s across the north. Sunny skies expected in the south, partly cloudy temperatures in uh, the mid-20s. Next Tuesday looks like the most settled day in the outlook with light northeasterly wind afternoon coastal sea breezes, some morning fog in Gippsland. Temperatures uh, generally in the high 20s or low 30s in the south, low to mid 30s across the north. And then it looks like on uh, next Wednesday, we will see another change pushing across the state. So temperatures through northern parts back into the mid to high 30s and across the south, low to mid 30s. But this stage, it doesn't look like there'll be uh, much rainfall with that change. So it could be a bit of a, a spike in the fire danger, but it doesn't look as windy as uh, the conditions we had yesterday. But Unfortunately, uh, very little rainfall in the outlook. So a bit of uh, time, hopefully, to get these fires uh, out before we hit another period of uh, concern in about a week's time. Exactly right. Uh, we, we don't have the rainfall, but we do have uh, reasonably settled conditions, although we'll just be watching those winds across uh, the weekend, even though they are from the south, they will have a bit of um, strength to them. But... Yeah, a bit of time before uh, the next spike in the fire danger. That's great news, Michael. Uh, thank you very much. Is there anything else that you think that anyone in uh, the regional Victorian community needs to know about as far as the weather situation today? I think that's it. Just unfortunately no sign of any decent rainfall in the outlook. No worries. All right, well, thank you for bringing us some good news, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jane. Michael Efron, they're, uh, the senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. You are listening to the Victorian Country Hour. It is 20 minutes to your next news at one o'clock. Uh, a couple of texts coming in on 0467 uh, One responding to Chris's text earlier saying that the sad fact that forest areas are locked up, the more fires that we will have. Uh, this text saying that this is not true, that locking up forests causes more and worse fires. Studies have shown that logging in forests actually dries them out. Less shade, soil compacted, the regrowth over time uses more water 
than mature forests. So dry forests make fire more likely. Thank you for your text. And we were speaking earlier about the Victorian government extending the consultation period for uh, the proposed draft new laws for animal care and protection in Victoria. Bill and the Gamby has said, from my observation, the animal welfare consultation is being swamped by submissions, which demonstrates that the authors have little understanding of modern farming. It's urgent that practical farmers lodge a submission to counteract the misinformation. And Bill has done so. Thank you for your text, Bill. And on the same topic, Jolene's text in saying, Hi, Jane, there is a lack of care and supervision for lambing used by many farmers. They don't supply their animals with protection from the weather, leading to the loss of 15 million lambs every year on Australian farms. Of course, animal welfare laws are imperative. I might just check that fact because I'm not 100% sure about that myself, Jolene, but thank you for your text. If you'd like to contribute to the Victorian Country Hour, the text line's always open, 0467 842 722. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. A northeast yuzu grower says this year he'll harvest his first solid crop in a decade. The irregularly shaped Japanese fruit tastes like a combination of mandarin and grapefruit and contains more vitamin C than a lemon. After growing chestnuts for 25 years, Brian Cassidy and his wife Jane planted 1,800 yuzu trees in the Robin farm in 2012. But Mr Casey says that water management remains a challenge. So he was one of 20-odd growers who attended a recent irrigation event in Beechworth. Uh, they're a big challenge, uh, especially the yuzu. The last 10 years, we are one of the first to grow it. Uh, they've got three hectares, but it's kept us very busy and it's just been a challenge getting it going well, which it is now, and irrigation was part of that issue we had when we were establishing the orchard, yeah. So what are your main concerns when it comes to, yeah, just water and irrigation in general? Yeah, well, with, uh, we've found the difference between growing chestnuts and growing citruses. The citrus is a lot more temperamental, especially with the yuzu, with when you irrigate and soil moisture over the dry periods is very important. So... We just weren't 100% confident we were either doing enough irrigation, too much or not enough, and either one's not good. So we're here today to learn to try and get that balance about right and just keep the irrigation, supplementary irrigation, because we do get a reasonable amount of rainfall up here, about 1,100, 1,200 millimetres. So, yeah, so we're just learning here today from some experts on, on when's the best time and amount to water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've been out in an orchard soil testing. So yeah. can you talk us through what you've learnt from that? Yeah, so we've never done a soil pit. I've seen it done before, a metre-deep soil pit, uh, looking at the soil types. We've got a, a fairly good idea of what our soil type is from other farmers in the area, uh, but we've never done a specific soil pit. We've wanted to, so after today's practical, we'll definitely do one because um, uh, Jeremy made it look fairly straightforward what to do. So uh, we will. So, yeah, so that's high on our list when we go back is to dig a, a couple of soil pits and, and properly assess our soil type, yeah. And what kind of information do you hope to get from that? Yeah, once we know our soil type, we can now, uh, as we understand, work out the uh, ready, readily available water, the RAW point, which is what it's all based on, your decision on when and how often and how much to irrigate. So... So understanding your soils and the soil moisture holding capacity is important and then we're going to work out, of course, the crop, what's happening on top. So <laughs> we've got to work all that out yet. Um, once we work all that out, it's only an estimate. It's not an exact thing. 
um, then we will have a more better idea if we're irrigating too much or not enough, yeah. And what a lot of the growers today were saying was how they were surprised at how little equipment or skills were needed to actually do those kinds of soil pit tests. Do you think this is something that's achievable for the average grower? Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, it was very simple to do, just a few basic tools. Once you dig your pit, of course, uh, yeah, I think a, a backhoe is very handy for that. <laughs> uh, once you've got your pit dug, yeah, it was very easy just taking the soil. They showed you how to work it up to a little ball and work out the uh, soil type. I'd be doing a protrusion with the thumb and your finger. So it was very simple stuff and sort of thing, once you got the hang of it, you probably would do a, a bit more often across your, your orchard, depending how big it was, and get to know your soils even more. The more you understand your soils, the better off you are. There's no doubt about that, yeah. And um, in terms of yuzu, like I've definitely seen it pick up in terms of demand. Yeah. So um, how's it going? Yeah, no, it's looking good. Um, like I said, our orchard's 10 years old now um, and it's, it's reaching maturity. Uh, I've had some issues with uh, production and quality uh, involving nutrition, irrigation management, which we've pretty much got resolved now. Uh, so this year's crop's looking really, really good. And um, from what we're hearing from our agents, the demand is quite good. So wait and see. It's a, it's a difficult crop to harvest because you've got to cut each piece of fruit off. Uh, the trees are very uh, thorny, so it's t- quite time-consuming. So a lot of work goes into growing and producing and harvesting them. So they're a premium product. Uh, but the demand is, is, there's not been much around at the moment, which is good. And the demand, from what we understand, is reasonably strong. Mm. So we're fairly confident we can sell out our crop this year. And after 10 years, we need to, because <laughs> it's been quite, a, quite an investment. And this is our first proper crop, you know, decent crop that we, we can get a return on. So, yeah, it's all looking good. So I'll, I'll let you know in about two or three months. That was Yoruban Yuzu grower Brian Cassidy speaking there with Faith Tabaluyan. And you're on the Victorian Country Hour. It is 14 minutes to the next news at 1 o'clock. A couple of your thoughts coming in on the text line 0467 842 uh, There's been a bit of discussion around uh, forests, whether locking them up uh, or not is a good thing in, in regards to uh, fuel loads. Uh, one text here saying that rubbish, the more fuel, the bigger and more ferocious the fire every time. And we've also been speaking about the draft legislation uh, that it's currently up for consultation until the 25th of March on Victoria's Animal Care and Protection Bill. This one here from Jackie saying uh, that farmers do look after their ewes and lambs well. Comments from city-centric people show their lack of farming knowledge. Suburban cats and dogs have a miserable, unnatural life in comparison. Thanks for your text there, Jackie. Now, to the latest on the government's biosecurity protection levy. Farmers say the changes that they will have to pay to keep exotic pests and diseases out of the country are still unfair, despite the government reducing the amount they will have to pay. Biosecurity measures managed by the federal government include international border checks, plus ongoing surveillance and monitoring to ensure potentially damaging viruses, pests and diseases don't make it into Australia and harm our food production. This week, legislation to enact the biosecurity funding change Uh, was introduced into federal parliament. The federal government says the cost of battling invasive pests such as varroa destructomite and potential threats such as foot and mouth disease is increasing and the previous funding model wasn't sustainable. 
So in last year's budget, it proposed farmers should contribute forty-five, sorry, $47.5 million or 6% of the total $804 million biosecurity for 2024-2025. Importers were also slapped with the new charges. They would be picking up the tab for 45% of the costs or $363 million, while taxpayers would contribute $350 million or 44%. But last week... There was back down of sorts and the government restricted, sorry, restructured its biosecurity levy, cutting the amount farmers will pay by changing the way the fee is calculated and raising importers' contributions. David Johinke is the National Farmers Federation president and joins us now. David, are you still unhappy with the proposed levy? Uh, good afternoon. And yes, as an industry, we still oppose the levy for a few reasons. The first being that we believe that we're not the ones that create the risk and therefore um, if we do have an incursion, farmers still will pay for the mopping up and cleaning up of any incidents that's of um, national significance. And we believe that we're doing that side of the coin. We shouldn't have to do the initial protection. And then secondly, this isn't just about agriculture when we talk about biosecurity. When we have issues such as fire ants, that's a whole community issue and everybody needs to be shouldering that through general taxation. But when it comes directly from a levy from agriculture, the, the main concern that we had was we had no oversight, no ability to direct funds or even get value or demonstrate value for money. And it has been noted that there is a, a suggestion that a reference group should be established, but that to my knowledge has not been included in the actual regulations itself that have been put towards government. But do you acknowledge that the cost of trying to keep pests and diseases out of Australia is increasing? Agriculture is obviously going to be one of the biggest losers if something like foot and mouth disease gets in. Oh, absolutely. We acknowledge that it needs a sustainable funding um, system. It needs to be funded at an adequate level. But it's got to be noted that agriculture isn't the one that creates the risk. And that's what we come back to first principles is even the importing industry. Some importers are suggesting that they believe they should be paying this as well. They should be paying the levy, not farmers. So we're not on our own calling for this. And I've got to reiterate, every farmer organisation is in lockstep by saying, we don't agree with this levy. It should be done in a different way and it should be um, levied on the people who create the risk. So who should make up the shortfall then? Well, ideally, if um, we could have it as a container levy, that would be the ideal scenario. But in lieu of that, it should be by the people who are importing the goods, by the value of those goods that are coming in, because those containers are the ones that we will see the pestilence come in on. And it's those containers that need to be inspected and, and uh, ensured that there's no um, risks coming in through that process with the goods that are actually contained within the containers. So uh, my wonderful uh, executive producer, Emma Field's done a little bit of uh, digging on this for me this morning. Uh, the new biosecurity levy the government announced last week, uh, she found that this actually reduces the amount farmers will pay. For example, um, you're a grain farmer. According to the government modelling, the total amount paid by the sector will drop from $8.11 million under the old plan to $5.74 million. Isn't that a win? Um. It's not the number that really matters, it's the principle. If we're talking about numbers, we probably, as an industry, would still be unsatisfied with half a million dollars purely because, once again, we're not the ones creating the risk. And if we were the ones creating the risk, yes, we should be um, contributing to the, the levy itself. But that comes back to the sense, if we have a foot and mouth disease breakout, 
by the legislation, farmers need to pay the cleanup costs of it. The, the government will put up the initial funds and then the industry will pay it back over a long term via a um, funding arrangement, via essentially a loan. So we will pick up the tab if something happens, but we're not the ones creating the risk. And that's, that's the point we're trying to make. It doesn't matter what the dollar is, we're not the ones actually um, allowing the containers to come in unchecked. You've got some uh, support here from Jeff from Jamdrop on the text line saying that it is the government and importers. Um, they're the ones that should be bringing. They're the ones bringing the goods in, so they should be responsible for any issues and costs associated with that. Um, but the government's also increasing the passenger movement charge, which for people that may not be aware of what that is, it's basically a fee for people that uh, for every person leaving Australia. This has gone from sixty dollars to seventy dollars, and as I mentioned, is paid by every person leaving Australia. Australia. Do you think that that should be increased to make up some of the shortfall? Uh, once again, uh, it's very simple for us. It's the people who are importing the goods is the ones that um, we would like to see levied for this percentage of the um, the funding. We don't. Uh, we believe that yes, it needs to be a, a system where everybody contributes who's creating the risk, and it's that segment that we believe it should be carrying the 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 burden of this additional levy fund. Noting too. Um, we haven't had it clearly explained what this levy would be used for, what's the tangible benefit of the levy, other than the, the quantum or the sums that each um, commodity may be contributing to it. And that's also the, the question that we've had from the get-go was, well, what is the actual benefit that we will get out of agriculture contributing that would be an onshore benefit for farming? So if the increase to the importer, if there's an increase to the importer levy, can you point out why the government coalition, the, the, sorry, the coalition government failed to get this done despite promising an importer container levy? Uh, let me make this quite clear. We think that it's been a lost opportunity for a long amount of time and we actually welcome the fact that we're having this conversation, especially having it as a sustainable model. Absolutely. And we believe that the last government missed their opportunity and their tenure to get it right. And we've heard com comments and conversations around that they were setting up a system where containers would be the, the preferred option. But once again, we never saw legislation um, come through their processes. So we just feel like it was a lost opportunity for those years. And it's good that we're having the conversation now, but it doesn't mean that the burden should be directed at agriculture. And I'm sure we'll keep having the conversation uh, here on ABC Rural for a little while yet. David Johinke, uh, thank you very much for your time this afternoon on the Victorian Country Hour. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. David Johinke there, President of the National Farmers Federation, speaking about a uh, new biosecurity protection levy that the government has introduced to Parliament this week. You're on the Victorian Country Hour. It is five minutes to the news at one o'clock. Time to get some markets. First, we'll head up to Wagga for the land market with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. There was a notable increase due to price rises last week with 41,000 lambs and 23,000 sheep offered. Despite a mixed quality, there was a wide selection available for processors, feedlots and restockers. While the market experienced an overall softening, lighter secondary lambs for restocking saw dearer trends with lambs for feeding on purposes, mostly maintaining their prices 
peaking around 140. However, heavy lambs weighing over 30 kilos sold five to six dollars cheaper, ranging at 182 to 244. Lambs weighing 26 to 30 kilo faced a price drop of anywhere from 10 to 20 dollars, selling at 145 to 165. Heavy trade lambs 145 to 160, while trade lambs 20 to 24 kilo had a slight decrease in price, selling at 120 to 158. In the sheep market, there was over 5,000 sheep sold initially this morning, with prices slipping 15 to 20 dollars. The balance of the sheep are yet to be sold. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Thank you, Leanne. And sticking with the sheep market, we'll now cross to Hamilton with Chris Agnew. Good afternoon. Thanks, Jane. With summer pastures disappearing quickly, Hamilton agents offered a substantial increase in numbers, up to 20,000 sheep this week, representing an increase of 13,650 head on last week's sale. More heavyweight sheep were available this week, with a good quality yarding that covered most weights and grades. The majority of the yarding consisted of crossbred ewes, with merinos making up some 35% of the offering. Not all the processes were operated and some in attendance were not fully active in a market that was very subdued and softer by 25 to $30 and more in places due to the weight of numbers available. The general run of mutton realised to average between 180 and 260 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Crossbred ewes sold to a top of 81, with the well-covered merino used to $73 per head. Merino weather sold up to a top of $88 per head. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. And let's head to Bansdale for the cattle market now. Good afternoon, Brett and Fletcher. Numbers decreased to 550. That's 90 fewer than the sale of a fortnight ago, with an export processor rejoining the regular buyers in a dearer market in places. Quality improved with a better selection of prime cattle. Finished trade cattle sold close to firm, while plainer young lots eased up to 45 cents. Quality was an issue in places. Grown cattle sold up to 30 cents dearer. Heavy cows lifted 5 to 15 cents. Leaner lightweight cows were up to 15 cents cheaper. Heavy bulls lost 7. Yearling heifers suited to the trade sold from 255 to 275. Grown steers and bullocks 258 to 306. Heavy manufacturing steers 220 to 287. Most light and medium weight cows 110 to 235. Heavy weights 190 to 264. Heavy bulls 219 to 244. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thank you, Brendan. Uh, just a few of your final thoughts on the text line this afternoon. Kim from South Gippsland says that uh, as a long-time beef farmer, uh, animal welfare is first and foremost before profit. However, we have neighbours who are happy for their breeders just to do it tough as long as they can show off at the sale yards. Uh, we have stock and station agents next door who have starved his breeders due to overstocking. That sounds very sad there. Kim from South Gippsland and just on the fire situation with uh, just talking about our fuel in forests uh, Tom at Winslow says so a forest that is locked up and allowed to grow unchecked is not going to burn at a high heat he questions the people putting that argument forward have clearly forgotten the moonscape that was left after the high country burnt in the Black Saturday fires uh, and uh, just not based on the biosecurity levy that we were speaking about, Jeff says, whatever the levy is based on, it will uh, legitimise tax deductions in any way that importers will be passed on to consumers. So who pays in the long run? Thank you for all of your texts. Sorry I couldn't get through all of them today on the Victorian Country Hour. Jay McNaughton has been with you today. 
It's now news time, one o'clock.